Al Jazeera Podcasts. Israel has not only violated the principles and the provisions of international law, but has actually and literally bombed international law. Israel, over the last two months, have done something much more damaging to our humanity, not just to our sanity. Taking center stage today is Hossam Zomlut, Palestine's ambassador to the United Kingdom. Before his posting to the UK, Ambassador Zomlut was head of the PLO mission to the United States. In this episode, he reflects on the war in Gaza, the double standards it exposed, the road to peace, and responds to questions about Palestinian leadership. Thank you so much for joining me on stage, Ambassador Hossam Zomlut. You've spoken a lot about how this war has exposed an alarming double standard when it comes to Western media coverage, when it comes to the fairness and the application and the enforcement of international law. And I wondered whether you could tell me, perhaps share with us, one moment during the last two months where you've seen that double standard reveal itself to you, where it's really hit home. There were many, many moments, but the one constant theme of all those is the double standards down the line. It's a constant. It's not just a one-off double standard. Media, commentators, politicians, they would even fail to recognize that Israel is violating international law. Most of the questions are leading questions. And the idea is, practically speaking, to box you uh, uh, in a defensive corner and to make you lose before you start. The moment they tell you, do you condemn, then you are the accused. And that question has many other presumptions, one of which you, the Palestinian people, are the instigators of violence. And what is much more dangerous than all that is the level of racism. Because most of these interviews that I have conducted, as an example, before me would be the Israeli ambassador. And given that Israel has committed way more atrocities and crimes, failing to ask the same question means, and that's why I referred to it as racism, anti-Palestinian racism, anti-Muslim racism. So not asking Israeli officials to condemn the much more documented crimes against humanity and asking us means that they would want us to acknowledge and accept that our lives matter less. With all the history, the complications before October 7th, have you seen it as an opportunity to enlighten people, to win people over? Because we have seen a shift, I'm sure you'd agree, on the streets of London, the US, all over the world. There are many reasons for it. One of which is the atrocious, murderous, unhuman uh, 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 attacks by the Israeli airstrikes, and the images that have shocked, shocked to the very core, humanity. Second reason, in my opinion, is you, the youth, and I see uh, a room full of people, and the activism that came from Palestine, our youngsters, uh, and Arab, Muslim, international, white, black, cross-community activism. I was reading some uh, statistics on uh, TikTok, uh, uh, one hashtag got uh, uh, something like 37 billion, which is free Palestine, 37 billion. Uh, uh, So there was a revolution 
using the new alternative platforms, media, social media. Media has been responsible for defiling the Palestinian cause, desecrating the Palestinian struggle, and on the other hand, legitimizing, giving some sort of a cover, moral, legal, political cover for Israeli crimes. For the people of the world, it is no longer just about Palestine. And they have followed that Israel has not only violated the principles and the provisions of international law, but has actually and literally bombed international law. They have bombed the UN premises, the UN buildings. All these people see that Israel is also corrupting their own achievements and societies, like liberal democracies. That Israel is dragging the West into its immoral orbit of wars, that their own rights, the right of expression, the right to assemble, the right to protest, the right to speak, have been threatened. It's like in the UK, you have the Home Secretary calling our marches, marches of hate, wanting to ban them. So people of the world seeing the effect on them, they are also seeing that Israel over the last two months have done something much more damaging to our humanity, not just to our sanity, which is, the normalization of the mass murder of children, of families, the mass destruction of homes. The question a lot of people are asking is, why isn't anything being done about this? And you mentioned the United Nations. There's a lot of criticism against the United Nations at the moment as a body. And I wonder, the PLO fought for so long to get a seat at the table. The PLO believed in this institution, that the Palestinians could have a voice there. You were ambassador to the UN for a long time. Do you still believe that, that that having a seat at the UN pays off for Palestinians? Oh, yes, absolutely, 100%. The actual starting point of the Palestine cause issue question was in 1917, when Britain, where I am serving now as an ambassador, issued the Balfour Declaration. That Balfour Declaration represented the the colonial arrogance at the time, they have promised our land, my land, without any consultation to another society that were not even in the land, to European Jews. We, the natives, who have lived there for thousands of years, the cardinal of civilizations, the hub between East and West, the birthplace of Christianity, And at the time, 1917, we were 98% of the population and owned 96% of the land, and we were turned into non-Jewish. What does it mean, non-Jewish minorities? It means that they denied us our peopleshood, that we are not a people, we are just non-Jewish minorities. We are not Palestinians. That time to the time when we force our collective presence, when we snatch our recognition from the jaws of colonialism and arrogance, and racism and hegemony is not a small achievement. It took our people decades of struggle. And that's why it's, it's brutal to start history from the 7th of October. History began in 1917. And our people have been in a constant state of struggle and revolutions and intifadas. So we have a seat in the UN. The US blocked our ability to become a full member state, but we are a state in the UN. The US also last week voted against a resolution to implement a humanitarian ceasefire. What does that tell you about the ability of the UN to get anything done? It tells me bad news and good news. 
The bad news is that the U.S. remains to be uh, uh, completely off balance, completely employing domestic politics on global issues. Israel in the U.S. is not a foreign policy issue. Israel in the U.S. is a domestic issue. And once the issue is domestic, forget it, your foreign policy would become extremely problematic. It will be based on short-term, narrow political calculations for politicians rather than for the state. Do you think think that's a major reason why there is so much inaction when it comes to this war? Because it is a domestic issue in the U.S. Yes, it's a major part. And in the U.S., there is a disproportionate power for interest groups, of course. But it goes beyond that. It is now proven beyond doubt that the U.S. alone cannot play the role of mediator. It is an opportunity to bring an end to the U.S. monopoly over the peace process that has led us to where we are. It is an opportunity to bring other major key international players on the table and turn peacemaking into a multilateral approach rather than the monopoly and the sole mediation that the U.S. has been insisting on for 30 years and has failed to deliver. Let's talk about the world after the war. So many Palestinians want to know, Ambassador, what is the plan for Gaza after the bombs fall silent and the rockets stop flying? There is no plan for Gaza. There is a plan for Palestine. Gaza is an integral, beloved part of Palestine. And uh, uh, any plan has to include Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza in one integral geographic and political and national uh, arena. This two-state solution? I don't like the term two-state solution because it assumes that there are no states and we have to create two states. There is already one state, and that state is occupying the other uh, area. Uh, I'd like to say we must end the occupation. Uh, End Israel's occupation, establish a state of Palestine on the 1967 borders with Jerusalem as our capital, and implement the right of return for our refugees. This is a sacred right because it is our homes, I'm one of them, that uh, uh, as much as there is collective claim to our uh, homes, there is a private claim. This is private property. Uh, So, yeah, these are our demands primarily. The Palestinian people in Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in the diaspora, inside the Green Line, need to see their rights fulfilled. How do we get there, though? Because right now, as things stand, no one sees the hope, no one sees the feasibility of implementing a two-state solution. No one sees the feasibility of peace, actually. And when I speak to Palestinians, with all due respect, they don't see vision, they don't see leadership either from the Palestinian side. And we can put to one side the role that Israel and the U.S. has played in this because many people in this room can see that and can agree on that. But what do you say to young Palestinians who, for instance, say, why not be bolder? Why not call for new elections now? Why not bring in, as you would agree, all the bright young Palestinian minds that are fully capable of ushering us into peace? Recently, I said, maybe we are not the greatest nation on earth, but I don't think there is any nation that is greater than us. And that has been proven by deeds, not words. If the amount of pressure that has been put on us for the last 75 years, nonstop, from the Nakba until the Nakba, has been exercised with any other people, I don't know what would have happened to them. But because we are rooted, rooted in history and in identity, 
such a nation <clears throat> would achieve peace. Such a nation would find a way to survive. That's number one, and we have survived. And such a, such a nation will, in, in the end, enforce its will. We are much closer to that than what our enemies want us to believe. Much closer. But one thing is saying it, Mr. Ambassador, and the other thing is seeing the feasibility of it. You know, how, From the how conversations I'm having, people don't see it right now. Why not start now? Why not try something new, make a collective effort to draw out a path forward? We do. The Palestinian people have their way to flip the table. And they always have the way to take things in the direction they believe it should be. The Palestinian people have a way when they, when they measure the temperature and know when things is ripe to... So don't worry. Look at all other issues, conflicts, revolutions, struggles. Look at South Africa. It took more than 300 years. It also took a Mandela. Yeah, it, but okay. But we, we have... We... Yes, but we have, we have 13 million Mandelas. And there is a... <laughs> we, we, we do. We do. Every Palestinian mother that has been able to deal with this horrific, unprecedented catastrophe in Gaza, still caring for her mother, is a Mandela. Every Palestinian teacher that's still able to bring in our kids the best is a Mandela. How on earth did we survive this? That's a good question. How did we survive this? How did we survive the greatest power of the time, Britain, conspiring against us? How did we survive France delivering uh, uh, the, uh, the nuclear weapon to Israel? How did we survive since then America providing every single ability for Israel to commit its crimes and to shield Israel from any political or legal? How did we survive all this on our own? That's the question. That is the question. And I tell you, we survived it because we as a nation are united, People talk about divisions. Divisions are between political parties. But the people of Palestine are united. And the people of Palestine have their legitimate political system. That is the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which they have fought to achieve. We have one flag, one flag. And that flag, the, the uh, white, red, green, and black, these four colors have become the symbol of global anti-oppression have become the symbol of the fight for justice worldwide. People do not wave the flag only because it's a Palestinian flag. It has become their flag. You know, the Palestinian kufiya has become the, the symbol for the global youth for resilience, huh? for challenging the status quo, for the change they seek. So you tell me we are weak, we are uh, desperate. No, we are not weak. We are being oppressed, repressed, killed. Our homes are being destroyed, but we are not failing. I want to wrap on a more personal note here. Um, we're seeing Israeli forces close in on Khan Yunis, moving into the southern part of Gaza. Tens of thousands of people are being packed into places like Rafah, um, where kids are grieving. They're having to start their lives over. They're starving. And they're living in tents. You yourself, Mr. Ambassador, were born in a refugee camp in Rafah. If you could speak to a Palestinian boy, a young Palestinian boy who's there right now, and he asked you, Mr. Zamlut, what happens next? What would you tell him? 
Yeah. I don't have a crystal ball. But I'll tell him, you belong to a very special and great nation. I'll tell him that uh, he must be part of that journey. I'll tell him he should be proud of his ancestors, of his parents and grandparents. Uh, I'll tell him that uh, love is way more important than hate. Uh, that he has to have or she has to have so much love for their people and their country. You know, the one thing that makes Palestinians Palestinians is that we really love our people. I love our people. That's, that's the key thing. And I, I, I think there will be a huge challenge after the latest aggression uh, uh, on Gaza to make sure that it's not hate that will take over, it's love. And I'll tell him what, <clears throat> what really makes us uh, so resilient is not the investment in our, in our physical capital, but in our human capital. Yes, I was born in a refugee camp uh, in Rafah. I am the son of the Nakba. So the people who raised me were the actual people who were forced out of their homes in 1948, my grandparents and my parents. And I remember very well living the most perfect life you can imagine for a child. Why? Because we had such a strong sense of community, togetherness. Why? Because we have collective shared memory. Why? Because we know what connects us is one. The, what connects us and unites us is the fact of our oppression. We are all oppressed wherever we are. In Gaza, in Jerusalem, in Khalil, in Nablus, in, 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 uh, in the diaspora, and the refugee camps. And what connects us is our collective uh, uh, goal. You asked me about Nelson Mandela. About every single Palestinian I answered you is a Nelson Mandela because the heroism. I have been following only the stories of Palestinian doctors and nurses in Gaza. You cannot imagine this has never, they have given a new level of nobility to the profession of medicine. They... In other words, you would tell that little boy, it's all going to be okay. I'll tell that boy uh, it, will, it will be okay, but it will take him and his generation to pick from where we ended and to keep the march. The march might be slow. The march might be full with feeling of betrayals. Sometimes, I must admit, we may feel alone, but we are definitely, definitely on our way. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.